Hey guys, I'm Adam Rappaport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. All right, this week we got on the phone with Chef Tom Calicchio. Uh, like so many other chefs and restaurateurs recently, he had to lay off the vast majority of his workforce of 300 people. No stranger to the complicated mechanics of government, uh, he immediately turned his attention to Capitol Hill. Calicchio worked tirelessly to get the restaurant industry recognized in the $2 trillion stimulus package that just passed in the Senate and Congress, explaining to them just how big the economic orbit of independent restaurants are, from people they employ, nearly 11 million, to the purveyors that sell them the food, to the textile companies that supply their napkins, to the farmers, and on and on. Today, I talked to Calicchio about his efforts. Tom Clico, how are you holding up? Uh, th- that's the better question than how are you doing, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I keep catching myself and stopping myself. And uh, how are you holding up is a good one. Uh, you know, as time kind of goes on, it's uh, just sort of reality setting in and, and uh, um, just trying to deal with it day by day. I mean, I've been keeping very busy with the Independent Restaurant Council. Um, so my days are actually very, very busy and somewhat intense, but, uh, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's not easy. Obviously it's not easy. I mean, I feel, uh, you know, a lot of emotion around laying off 300 people. It's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's every day, every day brings something new. Every day brings someone who, uh, has COVID-19. Yeah. I'm, I'm coping, I guess. It's a lot. You've been in the restaurant business for a long time. You've been on TV for a long time. In the past two weeks, you've had to shutter all your restaurants. You worked tirelessly to get the restaurant industry recognized in the $2 trillion stimulus package that Congress passed. Have you ever had a two-week stretch that compares to this? Um, you know, possibly the two weeks after, after 9-11, but we, we also knew that, um, that that was more or less temporary uh, because, I mean, if you, if you were above 14th Street, you got a sense that people were glued to their TV, people were afraid, they were nervous, but it, it, was, it, was, it, was, lo- it was localized, and it was localized mostly to New York and, and Washington, D.C., but you got a sense that America was rallying around and you got a sense that they were willing to go out and support businesses that were affected, but this is different. You can't go out and with no end in sight, um, I think it's tough. I mean, going through the last recession was also very difficult and we had changes, but again, we were still open and we were still functioning. And, and uh, right now we're, we're shut down. And even though you do takeout, I mean, for, for most people, that's just a losing proposition. You know, and also for me, I'm not that interested in, in putting my, my, my employees at harm's way, asking them to come in and, and cook. Well, I want to ask you about the stimulus package. Um, I think one thing that most Americans can agree on is that uh, Capitol Hill has not been great in terms of actually getting stuff done and passing <laughs> um, legislation that helps most Americans. Um, how did you go about this? How optimistic were you, and and what was the key to actually being effective in your pursuits? Right. Um, if I had to sort of key onto a few things as to why um, we were effective, and also why I was able to pivot very quickly to the federal government, um, I guess it goes back to all the work 
that I did around hunger, especially um, when, when, when my wife, Lori, um, started working on her film, uh, we, we learned very quickly that um, if there was more of a government response, we could end hunger. And so after that, starting food policy action and lobbying on the Hill um, around hunger issues and other issues around food systems was kind of a dress rehearsal for, for this. So immediately, when I saw the enormity of it, you know, and I knew it was going to happen. I knew there was going to be this big charitable response and people would start passing, you know, the tip cup. And I knew that wasn't enough. There was no way that was going to, to you know, stem the bleeding here. And so uh, immediately I thought, well, there's actually a phone call of a friend of mine who, I, I, who was a lobbyist who would, you know, help us with food policy action. He called me about something else and I, I sent him a message saying, I think the independent restaurant groups need a lobbyist. And he said, let's talk. And very, very quickly, with the help and guidance of really Andrew Chasen, um, who a lot of people in the restaurant industry won't know, uh, he's an agent at CAA, just was really instrumental in, um, in, in making this work. And then very quickly, we pulled together. Uh, we found that there was a, a group in, in down south that had 100 restaurants that were focusing on this. Um, and then there was a group in Chicago that was focused on this. So very, very quickly, we pulled everybody together. And within two days, had Independent Restaurant Council funded, had lobbyists hired, had a comms team out of DC hired. Where did this money come from? I, I'd rather not say it's a C4, and, and I don't know if the people who funded us want us to, to say that. And because but, it's a C4, we don't have to disclose it. Gotcha, but people made contributions to help you get off the ground. Uh, it was, it was a, a couple of, uh, of large companies that um, are somewhat so associated with the restaurant industry. Gotcha. So you get the wheels going. At this point, are you literally trying to rally votes? Are you contacting congressmen and senators? What is oh, that process like? Yeah. And so immediately we had, um, you know, lobbyists and, you know, lobbyists have become a dirty word and, and, you know, to some extent that's warranted, but what these guys did, you know, they got in the room and they started working all of their contacts on the Hill. Number one, explaining the problems, uh, especially with restaurants, you know, small business, but, but particular issues around restaurants. And yes, uh, those who had any political connections at all uh, started working those, those connections. And again, from the time I spent with Food Policy Action, there were several members of Congress that um, I was able to call. And again, just to really educate them on the, our needs. Uh, that's what it came down to. This isn't about twisting arms. This is about just letting people understand the particular uh, predicament that restaurants were in, but also letting them understand the size of, and scope of the independent restaurant community. Uh, you know, we, we employ 11 million people. We add a trillion dollars of, of economic uh, activity, uh, you know, because if you think about not only the people that we employ, but if you think about all the farmers and fishermen and the liquor suppliers and linen companies and florists and all the other people who are in our economic orbit, um, you know, it's about 20 million people. And so just getting people to understand the, the size and scope of the independent restaurant community um, was, was really eye-opening for them. Did you find that the reception was fairly bipartisan in terms of the congressmen and senators? Absolutely. Congress, um, yes, they're known for bickering. They're known for, for this huge divide. You know, and even publicly, what you, you know, people were saying, um, we were hearing privately that they were really working together. They knew the stimulus had to go out, and there were some technical issues that they had to deal with. But my understanding is that people were working together behind the scenes, and and it, it's great to see that, at least in a crisis, uh, our government can come together both of them. Any 
Congress people or senators in particular who got behind your cause and, and fought for it? Yeah, we, again, we all spoke to different people. Um, I spoke to people like Cory Booker, Rosa DeLauro, um, Jim McGovern, Velasquez's office, uh, Velasquez. There were other people who, I mean, it, it, the list was probably a good, you know, 150 members of Congress that collectively we all had access to. And, and it was really just about letting them hear what our needs are. And, and it's still, this isn't, this isn't stopped yet. I mean, there's still rules that are, are, are going to be uh, uh, made sort of governing how this all works. That hasn't happened yet. So our efforts are, are far from over. So let's, let's talk about how it might work, because I think for those of us at home who, who follow the restaurant industry on Instagram and, like, and we read Eater and Grub Street and stuff, and we're trying to keep track, but the, the stimulus bill is overwhelming in its size. So let's try to get specific. Let's say I'm a mid-sized restaurant in Portland, Oregon, or in Houston, or somewhere in Brooklyn. How do I go about approaching the stimulus package to help me get back on the ground, get my feet back on the ground a couple of months from now? Yeah, so uh, Independent Restaurant Co- uh, Coalition, we are putting together a, a handbook and a playbook for how to do this. But I would say now, the best thing to do is make sure you have all your information ready. Make sure you have a year of P&Ls, uh, you know, going back to last year, making sure that you have um, uh, all of your employee files, you know, uh, up to date, making sure that, number one, you should call your banker. I don't use one of the big banks. They actually have to be qualified to administer uh, SB7A loans. Um, uh, my bank is, is working with some of the big banks to, to, to receive this funding because the way it works is your banker will approve your, 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 your application. It doesn't go back to SBA, which is usually the case. Usually you work for a bank, but it still goes back to S- SBA, Small Business Association, and they have to okay it. The banks uh, actually can authorize the, the loan going through. And then the way it's working right now you have to hire 90% of your staff back um, by June 30th. It does come in as a loan, but it's a forgivable loan if you hire 90% of your staff back. There's money for benefits and payroll. Uh, and there's also m- stimulus money for your rent. Not for your, not for your AP, not for your accounts payable, but um, for rent. So uh, the money comes in, and if you adhere to all these guidelines, it's, it's a forgivable loan. There's also additional money in in the form of, if I want to actually uh, borrow money for my accounts payable, I can. That's just not forgivable. But it's at a very low interest rate, and it's advertised over 10 years. The size of the loan is commensurate to the size of your operation. So if you have a $10 million a year business, that loan will be larger than if you're a small restaurant with a $1 million a year business. Yes, yeah, yes. Uh, Again, if your payroll is smaller, you'll, you'll have a smaller portion that's forgivable. And when you say forgivable loan, can you explain exactly what that means? Right. You get a loan, and then if you demonstrate that you adhere to the criteria of the forgivable piece, uh, you don't have to pay that back. The problem with this right now, it's, it's only for two and a half months. So if this lasts longer than two and a half months, there needs to be additional stimulus, and they are negotiating a 4.0 now. Um, the, the, the one thing that we, Independent Restaurant Coalition, um, got into this legislation is uh, there was a limit. If you had uh, more than 500 employees, you wouldn't qualify for, for this portion of the stimulus. And we got them to understand that uh, in some cases, you know, take uh, Danny Meyer's uh, you know, company is 2,000 employees, but it's spread over 18 restaurants. So we got them to actually, for the restaurant industry and the hotel industry, to look at the individual LLCs as opposed to the whole enterprise. So we, gotcha. we, got, we got that in there. That was really important. 
So is the process essentially it, the restaurants are being folded into this bigger package that essentially are the rules the same for any small business out there that they would apply to loans in a similar way that restaurants would? That's correct. So what do you do now? You, you got over this first massive hurdle, Senate and Congress signed off on the stimulus package. To your point, we, we've seen this happen a lot in government. It all looks like it's a go. And then X number of months later, someone changes something or reverses course. How do you make sure that it goes as planned? Well, you would have to have another law that comes. This is law now. So okay. you would have to have another law to come in and supersede this law. Um, that would be very, very difficult to do. I think that would be political suicide for anybody that tries to do that. So I don't see that happening. But what we do need to bring up a good point, there's going to be a 4.0 and there's going to be a 5.0. What if, because unemployment is so robust, what if I try to hire back my staff and I don't get 90% to agree to actually come back? Does that mean I get penalized? And that's what's going on right now because unemployment, again, is, is, has also expanded. And so we're already hearing that some people may, may you know, opt to just sit it out. And that doesn't work for us. And so, again, in the rules, can we fix this to say that you have to offer 90% of your uh, employees' jobs back? To be clear, it's not just hiring back 90% of the positions. It's 90% of the specific people who held positions with you? That's correct. So, yeah, so you at least have to offer them. Because to your point, they might have gone elsewhere for work. Yeah. Now, it could be also because they are laid off. If I pull them back from being laid off, technically they, they would have to come back to work or they can't collect. If they quit, you don't collect unemployment. We, we're not sure how this all works. This is all being worked out still. But, uh, you, know, uh, we're, you know, we're hoping that they move quickly through this because we, we really need to get this, this going quickly. But, uh, you know, and there's so many benefits for this right now. I mean, number one, I mean, I know that a lot of restaurant employees, you know, they're, they're trying to get unemployment, but unemployment systems are crashing. And state to state, that all changes. Um, but we need people to stay home. Um, if we're going to stop this virus, we need people to stay home. And if, if you're not, you know, bringing in money right now, you're out there, you know, trying to figure out how you can work. And, and you're maybe looking at the gig economy, maybe doing things that may put you in jeopardy because you have to earn a living. And so once we get this going and we hire everybody back, um, people can stay home, especially now. Public schools are closed. People have to stay home with their children. Uh, just no daycare is done um, at this point. And so there's a lot of reasons why we need to move this money through. We need to give people peace of mind that they can stay home and they can hunker down so we can actually beat this virus. Uh, because unless we do that, nothing's going to open up. Yeah. Well, let's talk about opening up. There's been talk that X percentage of restaurants won't open up again, that people won't be able to get back on their feet. What is your take on that? And how damaging on a long lasting term is this crisis going to be? And do you think that there are X number of percentage of restaurants that just won't be able to reopen? Well, this comes down to uh, what's a priority for our government. If, if it's a priority for our government for these small businesses to be able to open up again, in again, stimulus 4.0 and 5.0, they need to actually look at the capital requirements that we need to reopen a restaurant. I mean, I figure, you know, depending on the size of the restaurant, a restaurant's going to need between $50,000 to probably, you know, $750,000 to get open and also have enough money to sustain the business for that opening period. Because you got to figure for the next six months, let's say I can open in July. I got to figure for the next six months, it's not going to be busy. And restaurants, if you're not, if you're not operating by at least 80% of occupancy, you're not going to make money. And so again, the priority from our, 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 our government is, is, 
if they want small business to reopen and to be able to sustain themselves so, so people are employed. Because that's important. We have to get open to keep this, this employment going. Otherwise, a lot of people are going to be back on employment. So I think, I think they can look at, at again, 4.0 and 5.0 to see how they can capitalize uh, restaurants uh, and how small much, businesses so they have to stay open. Yeah, how much of this is explaining to the people making the build how a restaurant works, like what your profit margins are, what your, just to get back up and running, what your employee costs are, what your food costs are, you know, re, uh, what rent is in a, a place like Kraft in New York City, like how much money you have going out the door every day you're open compared to what you have coming in. Well, that, that's, it's, that's, that's all a big part of it, educating uh, lawmakers on how our businesses actually run. I mean, what this is really exposing now is just how fragile the restaurant industry is and how our businesses are. You know, on a great year, if you're, if you're making 10%, that's, 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 you're doing really, really well. Uh, on a bad year, we're, we're losing money. You know, and then you've got to con- you know, consider the restaurants that recently just opened up. I mean, I just opened a restaurant a year ago. And so there was a capital expense there. I just renovated my private dining room. So over the last you know, year, uh, about a, a million and a half dollars went out the door um, to either open restaurants or to renovate restaurants. I think that education is key, just uh, having lawmakers understand the business and understand uh, you know, our needs. Can you talk about charity versus governance? But for all of those of us out here, you know, we're following along on Instagram. We see the needs of the staffs. We see the GoFundMe accounts starting up. You know, we want to support the restaurant industry. What can we do? What should the average person be doing who is a food enthusiast and wants to see you guys get back on your feet? Yeah, so uh, two things. I, I think, listen, it, there's, there's going to be a charitable response to this, and I think that's fine. When I say fine, people who want to donate to either individual restaurants, GoFundMe pages, if they want to fund uh, you know, various organizations that are, that are out there collecting money for the restaurant industry, that, that's fine. Um, you know, to keep in mind, if we're talking about 11 million people, and let's just say someone raises $11 million, so everybody gets a dollar, it's not going to do it. <laughs> um, I think having funds that are more specific, saying that they're going to take care of restaurants, um, workers, healthcare if they come down with COVID-19 and they don't have insurance. I think that specificity is, is, is probably better. In the last year, I mean, and then Garrett Harris, who's a writer, uh, wrote a book, uh, Winner Take All, and I, I think uh, it really outlines how charity is not, is not the answer to systemic problems. Um, this, again, has been the subject of a lot of the work that my wife has been doing uh, with her organization, A Place at the Table, is that if we want to solve systemic problems, we need a government response to those problems. It's not a matter of, again, passing out, passing the hat. You know, a, a good example, New York Food Bank, you know, they can raise $2 million at, at their fundraiser. And yet if the government cuts $15 billion out of the food stamp program, how many of those fundraisers would you have to do to replace that money? I think it's every day for like 12 years or some crazy number. And so you understand the size of the problem, size and scope of the problem isn't going to go away from, uh, from again, from doing fundraisers. All the, you know, the organizations that are, that are working hard to help people, they're, they're putting a bandaid on it. I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't donate, but I think if there were a, a huge government response to it, um, it wouldn't be needed. Can you imagine if Food Bank and, and uh, God's Love We Deliver and, uh, no Kid Hungry, if they got all of their funding from the federal government and they were still able to do the work that they're doing, but they could do more work uh, uh, working on, on, on getting resources out there as opposed to fundraising efforts and things like that, 
Uh, and so there's, there's always a need for these organizations, but it would be really great if they didn't have to do a, you know, a fundraiser to, to, to find funding. So the same thing here, it makes people feel good. People want to feel good right now and it makes them feel they're doing something and it should continue to do that. But what they really need to do is use their voices. Call your representative. This always sounds like so, you know, trite when we say this, call your representative and tell them that it's really important that restaurants are able to open up and are able to sustain themselves. They need to hear that message loud and clear. And the more calls they get from people giving them this message, the easier it is for our job. And then the other thing that I, I want to caution people, when people start hearing that, oh, there's all these charities out there that are doing stuff for the restaurant industry. Why do they need money, money from the federal government? They don't need that money. There's all this charity out there, which is, again, exactly the, the, the opposite message that you want to give. And is often the message that, that charitable organizations give because they want to show how effective they are. And so when someone says, well, we rescued you know, millions of pounds of food and we fed you know, 50 million people, the average person goes, well, they got it. Why, why should government do anything? Why should my tax dollars you know, go to support this? Just, just look, look what this organization is doing. And so that's why you need to be careful about the messaging around this and really educate the public on, again, the size and the scope of the problem and get them to understand that, yes, it's great to have this charitable response and yes, you want to help, but also knowing that that's, that's not going to, to really fix the problem here. Sure. But I mean, you've pointed this out before about government and dumb government or ineffective government. You know, if you look at your colleague, Jose Andres, like, you know, the government's not going down to Puerto Rico to feed people. The government's not going to other disaster areas to feed people. And a lot of times it is chefs who are just bootstrapping it and getting something done on their own because where the government's not stepping in. Right. And, and Jose is doing an amazing job of doing that. But again, it gives the, I think it gives the average person the impression that, well, why should the government do it? Jose is doing it. What's the big deal? Look at Jose's doing it. He's got it. But then how do you get the government to do what they, in your mind? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great if we didn't need Jose to do that? It would be the great. Government, because the government's doing it. Or if Jose's doing such a great job, why isn't the government actually funding his, you know, FEMA should be actually funding him? I get, well, that's a good question. And the question is, well, why isn't that happening? And how do you get that to happen? Well, again, people need to actually prioritize that. People need to say, this is a priority to feed people. I mean, again, if the priority in this country was, if, if all the, if the citizens of this country said it's no more acceptable to have people that are hungry, and, only, and knowing that $30 billion could fix the problem, and they made it a priority, and they actually made sure that someone, whether or not they get elected, hinges on this, it would change right away. That's true, but do you imagine the reason there is such bipartisan support for the stimulus package is because it comes back to business, it comes back to capitalism, that there's a lot of business and, and unemployment and the, the, the economy is at stake here? Um, yes and no, because an unfettered capitalist would say, well, if the business can't survive, it shouldn't be in business, too bad. No, this is about people. See, at some point we gotta understand that we are a, um, our, our capitalism, a lot of it is based on, on a, a consumer economy. And so unless consumers are spending money, it doesn't work. And so again, you want to stimulate the economy. That's why SNAP is such a great way to stimulate the economy because it goes, it, money goes into the hands of people that are going to spend 100% of that money. And this is why a payroll tax cuts are really not going to do it because if you have a job right now, that's not the problem. The problem is if you don't have a job, you need money. If people are right now nervous. They're not getting money. They're not going to spend a dime. 
And so that's where the economy slows down and stops. Now, yes, some businesses are forced to shut down, and so this could help them. But again, we have to make sure that consumers, the people that are, that are going to spend all of that money coming in because they have to, that's how you stimulate the economy. You don't give it to money, to money to people who aren't going to spend it. Before we let you go, Tom, let's hoping and saying you stay healthy for this next month. What does this next month look like for you as a restaurateur and as someone who's fighting for change on Capitol Hill? Yeah, I think, I think right now it's still, still fighting for change. You know, in terms of if I open up, I, I don't think I'm going to open up for takeout. I would open up to feed a hospital or feed, a, you know, feed people who are in need. That may be worth asking my staff not telling them they have to work, but asking my staff if they want to put themselves in harm's way. But for serving fancy food to people who can afford to stock up the refrigerator, not something that I, I think you know, is, is worth asking my staff to, to uh, put themselves in harm's way. I really think that people need to stay home. And I think it's, uh, unless it's first responders, and I, and I put food people in that. I mean, quite frankly, I really think there's going to be a big strike uh, today a lot of the workers, food workers, and, and uh, people that are working who are, are actively participating in the recovery, meaning if you are working in a supermarket, right, you have to go to work because the supermarkets have to stay open because people need food, you should be getting some sort of hazard pay um, because you are a first responder. And so, uh, you know, nurses, especially nurses don't make a ton of money. Um, they are putting themselves, I mean, you know, talking to friends of mine that are doctors that are working in ERs, they're assuming that 100% of the people that go into work will get this. And they should be compensated for this. And so again, if you are a food worker, you know, your job is necessary to make sure people get food, necessary to make sure people get food, uh, there should be hazard pay. Uh, farm workers right now that uh, have to go to work, they should be getting hazard pay. People who are packing food, delivery people, uh, these are people who are, aren't making a ton of money, but yet they are going, you know, day in day, they are going in, putting themselves at risk. And they, we should, we should compensate them for this. All right, Tom Clicchio, uh thank you very much for taking the time to uh, speak to us today and stay safe out there. Thanks, Adam. Cheers. Yeah, take care. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman, with additional programming help from Carrie Polis and Elise Namine. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to reach out to us about this episode or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.